Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. We have another special pandemic edition of the show. These are interesting times. We're all losing a lot of sleep right now, or... Uh, maybe some of us are sleeping more. Uh, all of our sleep patterns are disrupted in one way or another. I have a fantastic sleep researcher. Um, this this guy is recommended to me by so many people years ago, and I had him on on the podcast what a couple years ago. Yeah, um, I think and, that sounds right. And it was uh, to this day one of the top viewed. Uh, here we are podcast if not the highest I, I haven't I haven't checked the numbers but is a very 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 popular episode fantastic mind-blowing research professor of psychology at Iowa State University Zlatan Kurjan is joining me today Zlatan how are you well I'm at home uh, <laughs> how's your apocalypse yeah I think uh, you know better better than most I have nothing to complain about relative to many others so it's good to be back with you Shane yeah yeah thanks for being on um, what what an important topic uh, you know I I uh, everyone's kind of becoming a virologist very quickly <laughs> these days but there's a whole lot of other aspects of research people are going to have to start learning about being mindful of now more than ever um, I how, how's your sleep been through this whole thing uh, you know my my sleep has been you know uh, doing pretty well now really? I, you know I, I don't have to worry about uh, some things that a lot of other people have to I live in Iowa we've had a pretty small number of cases here we also had the uh, the governor and and the state institutions that jumped up pretty early uh, and understood the need for uh, social distancing and and so the the, the spread in Iowa I think uh, has been pretty minimal. It does help that nobody lives here too. So yeah, 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 that helps. I um uh, I, I'm I'm in La Crosse, Wisconsin, right now, so I'm not too far away from you at at the moment. Um, but I have been. When things started, even before I consciously started taking it as seriously um, and just started being more mindful of it, um, you know, a few weeks ago as things were coming out, I started with waking up in the middle of the night with like thoughts about, you know, people that I knew getting sick and myself getting sick and everything else. And, and that was even before all of my shows started canceling. And then all my shows started canceling, and and uh, you know people have a lot worse situations. But um, my my income has has been pulled out from under me, and it made me it made me reanalyze everything that I do, uh, and and so I was losing sleep there. And then I and then I started getting creative and motivated, and I and then I was sleeping less because I was creative and motivated and a hair manic. And I feel like just recently my sleep has started resetting back to a normal-ish uh, state. So I've been feeling pretty good over the last, the last few days. Um, good to hear that. Yeah. So, so what, uh, what, what do you think about at a time uh, like this as a, as a sleep researcher? What do you anticipate people having to deal with? 
So, yeah, I mean, that's a great question and obviously one that I've been thinking about for the last month or so, given what is happening. Obviously, unprecedented in so many ways in terms of social disruption, in terms of how people's lives are changing. And that also means that their routines are changing and, and sleep is very much tied to our routines. So it's something that inevitably will undergo a major change. Now, the question is, what kind of change? The anxiety that you just described, I mean, many other people are in your boat. They're losing jobs. They may not know when they'll come back to work, even if they have their jobs. Uh, generally, it's not looking good. So that uncertainty is stress, especially if you have children. We know those kinds of uh, aspects of stress and anxiety, uncertainty, uh, potentially you know, depression that may develop over time in, in these kinds of circumstances is really, really bad for sleep. Now, we really don't have much, much, much data yet on how sleep has changed. It's actually something that I'm kind of actively uh, working on. I've been contacted a few, few agencies and um, we're talking to Fitbit, trying to see is there a way we can leverage basically the existing data to see what has happened during this uh, pandemic. So mm -hmm. I would pr predict that you know, for a lot of people and especially those that are really hit hard health-wise or, or financially, are going to see some, some hopefully short-term uh, sleep disruption. Um, mm. I think that's one important element. Besides just, oh, people are not sleeping well, we know that sleep is an essential element in combating infectious disease. So mm. there we go back to the virology that you talked about. A lot of research is showing that the, the sleep is really where immune function reboots. And when it's really able to work hard to deal with the pesky bugs that invade us, so, you know, I mean, one way we see this in, uh, in our own experiences, you know, when you have a flu, when you get sick, you know, what happens? You sleep much more. You sleep more deeply. You tend to sleep during the day. Body needs that sleep and rest during time, especially with intense infections, to try to, to recover. So sleep is critical for that recovery, uh, but sleep is also critical for avoiding infection. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's a, a really interesting study in which... Um, you know, you introduce a, a common cold into people's noses, again, something not too dangerous, um, something not ethically questionable. And then you look, you know, who's likely to develop symptoms and more severe symptoms. And in this study it was the people that slept less that were more likely to develop symptoms. And again, mm. there's a lot of uh, evidence from uh, biology and neuroscience that looks at it at a more sort of smaller molecular level that suggests that sleep is really important for immune function. So one reason that we should care about what's happening to sleep is because of its relevance to health. Right. The other thing I wanted to quickly mention. Um, Take all the time you want. Yeah. Well, we, we do have unprecedented amounts of time. And this is <laughs> with, uh, with my next point is for those of us who maybe are not scrambling every day uh, to figure out how they're going to feed their kids or how they're going to file for unemployment, they may be, you know, staying home, uh, home, homeschooling their children, trying to, you know, fill days with, with, with Disney movies, trying to, you know, chat up every friend, the next boyfriend you had. And, and think about this. What percentage of the population now doesn't use an alarm clock? Uh, yeah, that's, that is interesting. I mean, it's got, I, I bet it's, I bet it's got to be like five times the numbers it, it usually is or something I, who who knows it's probably it's millions i mean not you know vast majority of people we know use alarms clocks because they have to get up to work they have to get kids to school so typically you know 
you have 80 to 90% of the population that's using alarm clocks, you know, as things are proceeding in the United States, as more and more um, areas are going to be locked down, and let's keep in mind that there are areas of the United States that are, that are just starting in terms of the epidemic because the country is so vast. New York may be at its apex, but cities like New Orleans, West Coast, uh, Florida, um, it's only the beginning. So when you look at the United States as a whole, the, the solar uh, pandemic is going to last much longer than in other countries because you really have these massive countries different geographically where different local governments are really running things. So that does complicates the situation. In any event, right now, uh, you, you know, you probably have, instead of 80% of people, you know, I'm sort of guesstimating here, using an alarm clock, maybe you have less than half now. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, you know, we're talking about like 100 million people movement there. So what does that mean? I, you know, I, I, I think one thing that it means is that we are able, unless, again, we're running around trying to, to deal with, with personal health problems, really follow our biological clock much better. Basically, wake up when our body is kind of telling us to wake up, go to sleep without worrying of having to get up early in the morning. And in a case when you have, you know, roommates or, you know, I have three other people, two little ones that uh, mm-hmm. live with me, uh, you know, you synchronize. Those clocks also tend to synchronize a little bit. And now all of a sudden, everybody there has a bit different rhythm we all, for example, this is obviously anecdotal in my case, but you know, I found that we all kind of shifted hour forward. We're going to bed a little later, sleeping in a little later, meals are a bit later, and we didn't plan like that. It just sort of happened naturally. This will depend on sort of are you evening, morning person and, and, and some of those factors. But I think that can be a really great thing for a lot of the population. Uh, mm-hmm. Unloading a lot of sleep death, uh, potentially helping you uh, as a protective factor, even if you were exposed to COVID-19. Yeah, yeah. There, there are so many people getting their first good night's rest uh, in years uh, during this. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, so uh, that, let's, let's do some like real kind of bare bones, nuts and bolt basics. Why, why in the world does anxiety keep us from sleeping in the first place why why, why can't what I, I mean you know from from a i i i have a guess at what maybe some of the evolutionary explanations might be but but from a um you know from an outsider perspective or from like a logical perspective you might think okay if i have a lot to do tomorrow that's and and that to-do list is causing me anxiety this is when I need to sleep the most. So why is it then the hardest time? You know, if you're a robot and could hit an on and off <laughs> button and just go to sleep whenever you wanted, the, uh, these times of anxiety are often when you need sleep the most. So why is anxiety interfering with sleep so much? Yeah, that's kind of like a catch-22. Catch um, so yeah, that's, an, that's a great question. And it's one of those things like, well, we all kind of experience that. So it's um, sort of kind of true that we expect, expect as such. The, the research on how emotions are impacting sleep is surprisingly scarce. Um, we have just started a systematic review of, of, of the scientific literature. And you know, th- there's, a, uh, there's a giant literature on associations between anxiety distress, even depression, and sleep problems in terms of surveys, in terms of just relating things. 
in terms of looking whether if you have uh, if you develop anxiety symptoms whether a year later you may have more insomnia or sleep disturbance but those things don't really get to when you feel that emotion that night what is it doing to the sleep right after right which really kind of gets at at what you're asking like how does this work and the the most of the literature that has uh, examined that experimentally so tried mm -hmm. to basically tinker with with anxiety is just focused kind of on general stress and we know very little how specific emotions um may impact sleep in terms of does you know fear work different anxiety you know what about depression what we do know is from a few experiments that that kind of anxiety induced stressful uh, situation when induced experimentally for example this one study from many years ago told some people that you're going to have to give this speech and presentation in front of audience the next morning mm. good night <laughs> And then in the other condition, they didn't do that. And they found that people, again, who anticipated this, let's call it the aversive, potentially threatening event, uh, mm. sleep more poorly. Mm. Uh, to your question of what is happening there, right? What are the nuts and bolts? How do we get from these emotional experiences yeah. here to what's happening during the night in our brains and then ultimately the next day when we wake up? So let me kind of tackle this kind of micro and macro level. In sure. terms of the micro level, uh, the nuts and bolts, um, one thing that anxiety uh, and anxiety feelings and general emotional response of stress and anxiety involves is physiological hyperarousal, right? So just think mm -hmm. about, I'm sure you had the moment in your life when you got some horrible news, maybe it was a death of a family member, maybe it was, you know, huge, huge disappointment, a, a breakup. And that moment when you realize that, you know, everything you anticipated for next month or two is just going to look very, very different. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that sense of anxiety, you know, maybe you notice that, you know, your heart maybe beat a little faster, right? Maybe you're sweating a little bit more, even then maybe hard to detect. Um, so a stronger anxiety responses have physical manifestations, right? The sort of a, the, the fight or flight response, if you wish, kind of gets uh, nudged upward a little bit. Mm. Now, to transition in a sleep state, you need to de-arouse, right? You need to disengage from the environment, disengage from conscious control thoughts, and sort of let this natural process take over. Well, when you just got a million new problems all of a sudden, right? That's very, very difficult to do. And even if you maybe solve those psychologically, let's say, okay, I kind of made a plan now, you know, we'll see what happens, but I made a plan it may take some time for the physiological arousal to actually go down. So that's one sort of physiological pathway there. Rumination, turning ideas over and over in your mind. That's my well, jam. That's my jam too. I've been doing <laughs> my, uh, my whole life. Um, and, you know, th those could be negative thoughts. They could be positive thoughts. But even, even like not negative problem solving, right? You keep on and on. I mean, so that mental activity then again, leads to perseverance of, 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 of brain activity and the kind of brain activity that really needs to um, lighten up, uh, no pun intended, right. before we can, uh, this process can, can take place. Because remember that sleep, there's not just like this switch that, oh, you know, you go from wakefulness and sleep. B both states are, are controlled by several different processes, right? So for you to fall asleep, several things has to happen, right? Your conscious mind sort of has to be in a certain place. Physiologically, you can't be, uh, you know, too aroused. Um, there has to be a certain cues of light. 
you have to have certain sleep pressure depending on how long you were awake, uh, time of day. And, and so all those things, it's a very precarious moment, actually, mm-hmm. as I'm sure you've experienced and, and, and many others. So mm-hmm. uh, that's what, what, what we think is happening on this kind of a, a more fine grade level. When you're having these emotions physiologically, you can chill out and it's difficult to disengage mentally. Mm-hmm. Now, on, a, on a broader level, and you alluded to, uh, to this when uh, you raised the question, you know, evolutionarily, how is this functional, right? This doesn't make sense, right? Well, I, I think, again, the, the way it, it makes sense that if somebody, you know, tells you, uh, you know, hey, somebody might come and kill you tonight, it's yeah. probably adaptive not to sleep that night. <laughs> yeah. So that's, I think, gets to the core of why our brains are very sensitive to any kind of threat. So I think we need to think about it that, that way. Is originally that evolved to handle immediate threats, but because we developed these big frontal lobes right here, yeah. we cannot imagine threats that don't even exist, right? Or threats that are somewhere in the future. And that leads to some of these, let's say, kind of um, maybe what looked like dysfunctional uh, effects during the times when we do need to be rested and alert to the maximum extent possible. Yeah, we're, we're, our, our, our stress response system doesn't necessarily pick up on the difference between someone actually maybe breaking in and murdering you and um, uncertainty over your 401k plan. Absolutely. And I know you had Robert Sapolsky on, right? And you know, this is the point he makes, he makes all the time is that sort of the the new parts of the brain, right? They co-opted the machinery of running away from a lion. And again, Mm -hmm. that machinery is great, but not necessarily the most optimal in, Mm -hmm. uh, in this kind of context. Hmm. So I'll, I'll share because I want to I want to get some tips. And I mean, I, I think much of life is is about um, finding the placebo that works for you. Um, and so I, I don't think that this is um, some universal trick that's going to work for every individual or, or I stumbled upon the, the secret. But I am an expert napper, usually. Um, and one of one of the things that's made me really great at napping is um, kind of combining mindfulness practices with um, with things that I've learned about meditation and even psychedelic experiences, which is uh, setting an intention for myself is really really important. If I if I go down and I just say I'm going to close my eyes, and if I fall asleep, that's great. And if I don't fall asleep, I'm still getting some rest. Um, so, so lowering the bar of expectations, um, that leads to less of like, oh, I'm not falling asleep. When am I going to fall asleep? It reduces stress, right? It it, it reduces stress quite a bit, uh, lowering those expectations, being okay with the unknown of whether I'm actually going to fall asleep or not. And committing to keeping my eyes closed is at least a bit more rest than eyes open, tossing and turning. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I've actually have developed, maybe, you know, maybe I describe it slightly differently, but it's very much, um, I, I can't really nap. I never really was able to, uh, unless I'm, you know, really, really tired. Um, even though as years go by, it's getting a little easier. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, there's kind of this pressure. I'm tired, I want to sleep. And then when that's kind of not working out, then you either get frustrated or you may not give yourself a further chance. Mm-hmm. These are actually first steps of what's called psychophysiological or learned insomnia, right? When your, your process of going to sleep 
becomes so frustrating that you develop very negative associations to it and then you avoid it, right? And that becomes mm -hmm. a bad cycle. So kind of going, being more gentle with yourself like you described, I think it's really important. And, you know, what I, what I found too is that, is that uh, I've kind of set the goal of rest, right? It, it's, at least if it's during the day, right? Or if it's at night, I set the goal of an attempt. Like I'm going to go down, I'm going to give this time, you know, not going to be hard on yourself. And if it happens, happens. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. But it does help it happen, as, I, as you found out as well. Yeah. Um, and, and I think there's several because, again, there's that arousal. It's, it's that mental uh, uh, stress and underlying physical, physiological arousal that may be just a reaction to your process of falling asleep that um, is then mitigated a little bit through these kinds of approaches. And you mentioned mindfulness and meditative practices. And, you know, one thing we know about those is they reduce uh, activity of the sympathetic nervous system. They lower mm -hmm. heart rate, they, they lower breathing rate, they may decrease blood pressure. Uh, and those are all those things that you do need and want before drifting off to sleep. And they also remove you from all that chatter regarding 401k and what are kids uh, taking or now not taking to school to eat tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. You uh, So we brought up evolution and then early on you mentioned that your sleep patterns have been getting uh, later and, and, and you know, this is, um, you know, our modern environment is a very different one than, than the one that we uh, evolved in. But in my, in my limited knowledge of modern sleep research, I, I, have, I have seen um, some people make the point that, hey, maybe our ancestors were actually kind of meant to be up during the day more and um, uh, up at night less. And so, you know, candlelight's okay for us, but the reason why we got to stay away from these blue screens is because they kind of um, mimic uh, the daylight and, and that's going to um, uh, mess with your, um, oh, oh what's, what's, the, what's the very popular um, uh, melatonin? Um, and, or something this is i i'm i'm sure this is all kinds of wrong which is why i'm asking you but but i've i've heard people say this and so my my expectation is that people when given um alarm clocks or given a break from alarm clocks and going back to what is quote unquote a natural rhythm you might expect people based on an evolutionary logic to start take getting like farmers uh, <laughs> schedules all of a sudden or do you not expect that to be the so case and why here's the reason we, we don't expect that so you know we all pretty much advanced species on the planet including humans right uh, have evolved in this light dark cycle and have this biological clock right so those are you know farmer ancestors that you just described right there their life and life of pretty much all other living beings up to that point uh, depended on the sun, right? Food supply depending on the sun and the weather, when you could be active and be outside and all that depending depended on the, on the sun, right? So people in generally would go to sleep much earlier when it got dark. There was not much to do after it got dark, right? Robert Eckridge talked about the, uh, what was probably some biphasic sleep a long time ago. Where people well, well, can, you, can you define that? Uh, so when that you have two sleep episodes in a 24-hour cycle instead oh. of just one, right? Oh, okay. So there, there's some evidence or at least speculation that our ancestors, 
I did, and that fits with this idea that really, you know, during the days where you can do stuff is when it's safe, when you can see, where you can, you know, grow food and, and do things like that. At night, you go to sleep, maybe wake up a bit in the middle of the night, chat yeah. about your dreams, have sex, etc. And then, you know, wake up early in the morning. Is that, uh, I've been doing things all wrong. <laughs> You're waking up, chatting about your dreams and having sex in the middle of the night. I, I've, I've, been, I've been mostly ruminating about why I'm not sleeping better. In the so I'm talking about our farmer ancestors. Uh, farmer ancestors. Yeah, okay, so. Yeah, sure. so, so that, and, and then in keeping, keep in mind where most, most, of the, uh, most of humans lived in hot or temperate regions, right? So that means like in the Mediterranean, you're not going to be doing much in the summer months between 11 a.m. and 5 p.m. Right, 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 right. Interesting. Um, so, so the rhythm, uh, right, we had was one where you went to bed earlier, right? Uh, mm -hmm. You woke up earlier. Uh, uh, sleep changed seasonally. People slept more during the winter because there was more dark and less. Interesting. They slept less during the summer. Um, yeah. And the other thing so uh, uh, that it's important, the other uh, important time cue is the social rhythm of social activity like meals at work well back then all that was completely synchronized with the sun right because you could you were dependent on those rhythms now it's really the industrial revolution that kind of screwed all that up right because with the advent of electrical light and factories and ability to work and to see outside of daylight and abilities of societies to organize and demand activity and work during the night all of a sudden, we decoupled the, the sun and the light from our social rhythms, right? Now our social rhythms have night shifts in a way that didn't really exist before, even if you had, you know, watchmen standing guard so we don't get attacked by another tribe, right? Mm -hmm. Our social rhythms got much more idiosyncratic, uh, much more diverse, depending on are you, you know, working at night or not. We could choose our social rhythms much better. You know, obviously, if you work in a bar is one thing and you live that life and if you stand up comic and you have certain... So all that's much more idiosyncratic and much more variable. Um, so uh, to, to bring this back to what's happening now, so I think one element, the alarm clock or that work requirement that, that kind of took away some flexibility and forced even evening people to be waking up in the morning, now that is... Is, is, is gone, right? So it's maybe freeing us up to follow some natural rhythms a bit more, but you still have this technological prison of light and possibility, right? Mm. That hasn't changed, right? Even with the pandemic. So I don't think we're going to just revert <laughs> to our uh, farmer ancestor pattern <laughs> yeah. anytime soon. Um, yeah, interesting. And, and we, we have choice, uh, choice of these things. Like we choose those screens at night because we want to mm -hmm. get, you know, and entertained and, and, and what have you. So. Hmm. So what are of the, um, let me, these notes are so, well, oh, you can't even see them in my, um, no, in, no, they're in my, visible in my camera. My, I have invisible notes, magic invisible notes. Um, I'm such a sloppy um, uh, writer, but one, one thing that I've been, I've been thinking about with almost each episode is this is an interesting time for us all to reassess many aspects of our lives and our culture and, and um, the way that we do things. This could be a real catalyst for change. There's a lot of people that maybe should have been working remotely 10, 20 years ago 
and um, and now uh, are now that they're forced to, this might change the way business is is done in the future. This might be a way um, of highlighting the impact of of um, humans' effect on the environment and global warming. When everything, you know, there, there's all of these possible opportunities that might arise, and. And we're now, now that all of a sudden, lots of people are not using alarm clocks for the first time and maybe getting to nap a little more um, during the day. What do you think that people could do that's different from, uh, take, take the world that we had one month ago and compare that to an ideal world of sleep for both an individual and a culture? Like, you know, who's doing it best? Do we do siestas? Do we, you know, that's that sort of thing. If you could maybe uh, speculate on that a little bit. Yes, yeah, so I, I think, uh, you know, part of, uh, part of what, you know, we've discovered is really important are these rhythms, right? Because our, our body needs a clear signal of when to be on and when to be off. And sun is that provided that until a couple of hundred years ago. Then we kind of started messing with that electrical lights. Now we have these little screens right in front of our eyes that are extension of our bodies. We get very nervous if they're not, we don't yeah. know where they are. It's like your little child. Um, I, I just I just looked around the room for my phone, actually, as you said that. Uh, oh, God. Oh, thank goodness. The, I actually don't keep uh, my smartphone in a bedroom, which is also my main advice to anybody who wants to improve their sleep. And, you know, Smart. I know people use it for an alarm. You can buy an alarm clock for $4, $3. $3. So, uh, you know, what? Uh, so uh, well, since we don't have that cue anymore, right, we kind of, we have it, right? Sun is still out there. It is. It just doesn't, as, doesn't work as, as well for us. Um, we know that that's hurting us. Uh, if you don't have a strong light signal, it basically confuses your body or when, you know, when, is, when am I restoring? When is, when is my immune function checking things around, working hard? When am I hungry? When am I peeing? When am I not peeing? All of those things follow the 24-hour cycle. And an example of that, you know, for example, research in nursing, in nursing homes, often you have that kind of a dim light everywhere, right? You don't want it to be too bright, but you have to be able to see. It has to be safe. People may have vision problems, etc. So often in a lot of institutions, you would kind of have the dim light constantly, day and night. And they figured out that that's a source of, of some problem. Like they don't sleep right. well because your body is kind of, you know, is it day, is it night? When do I need to kind of, uh, kind of do it? And then when they started in this one home, when they instituted, you know, kind of clear, let's have a daytime. Now it's daytime. And then mm -hmm. lights really low. It really helped a lot of residents, right? And that's not a conscious thing. Oh, now it's time to sleep, right? It's a very, it's almost subversive biological thing of how we react to light. Mm -hmm. So I, a lot of those rhythms now are getting kind of perturbed and I'm a bit, I'm, I'm a bit con concerned. Um, so I, I know your question was sort of about how can we, you know, what are the opportunities here? But I think it's hard well to think of. Also, what are what are the what are the problems that we should be aware of, embrace ourselves for? Yeah, and so yeah. I think that that's that's what uh, th that kind of led me to is I think one thing that I don't see mentioned is the importance of light, right? Mm. So you know, like I'm lucky here, I get to you know look at the woods out here and can go outside in a natural light uh, whenever. But think about being cooped up in a tiny studio apartment in Queens where you have one window that looks at bricks two feet away. 
-hmm. And you can't leave your house or apartment for weeks. Mm. Now, you've heard of seasonal affective disorder, right? That's what happens in the winter when you have less natural light and people get more depressed. Well, that is happening now to people who are quarantined or self-quarantined in their homes to the extent they don't have a lot of exposure to natural light. And you get millions and millions of people who are undergoing that. And so I, I am, so I, and I, you know, one big advice that I would give to people is, you know, go get exposed to natural light. I mean, go get outside, not just for exercise, not just to have fun, but just to be in the light. If you can't mm -hmm. go outside, open your window and stick your head out. Mm -hmm. You know, go on a balcony. This has effects on our health and our mental well-being that we are not even aware of because they're right. it's, it's subtle and sort of indirect. And we feel them. Like if you're, you know, cabin fever, you know, big part of cabin fever is that. Mm. It's like you want some light and not the, the lamp, but real light. So I think we need to think about that, that minimum informing people that one reason why it's important to go outside is to have that light exposure. If you can't make that part of your routine, if you end up being stuck at home for a long time. So it's kind of weird. We, we, we had all these problems with all these extra lights at a wrong time. Now we have additional problem with not having that main healthy light, right? That we right. need to have during the day, namely the exposure to the sun for, for some of us more than others, of course. So that's kind of ch the challenge and something I would like to see being addressed a bit more in both in conversation, because mm. I think it's going to have down the road consequences you know once the physical toll passes right the psychological toll is gonna happen you know we know that from the 2008-9 crisis uh, in terms of the increased suicide drug use mental health symptoms that occurred year to two years after both in the united states and uh, europe right so these are the kind of factors that if we think about now could, could potentially help down the road. And I, I think the opportunity to kind of uh, end this bit on a, on a positive note is we are revisiting these routines, right? As you said, we're thinking about, we have kind of new freedoms now, but we're also reevaluating what we're doing, right? And we're also considering of, of maybe being more flexible with our routines going forward because mm -hmm. we don't know what's going to happen. Are there going to be more viruses in five years? Is this thing going to return, right? We are asking ourselves those kind of questions where we we're just weren't asking. So, I think that is an opportunity to think about personally what are those important things in our lives, but also in terms of you know work, etc. You know, one thing that worries me about a telework is more of the you need to be available 24/7 when your boss wants, and that's part of the problem of why Americans generally don't do that well with mental health, right? Mm. And why the sleep suffers because you don't have oral routine with with clear signals. Mm. So I think the more we can do to personally organize our lives and socially to try to coordinate so um, that we kind of know now is the time to, uh, to snooze and now is the time to, to be active. Yeah, I mean, now, now that people are, more people um, than ever are going to be working uh, remotely, this will allow people to kind of set their own schedule. Uh, yeah, I, I have an assistant that picks her own hours. That's how I want it. I, th I think people are far yes. more productive when they Absolutely. work when they want to work. That is uh, going to be a big, big benefit um, for those things, you know, especially if it's the kind of work. Uh, I think those are kind of contexts that are great because if it's kind of an independent work of you do it whenever, you know, I need it by Tuesday. When you're going to do it, I don't care. 
So I think that works great. Like that's kind of the example that, yeah. that, that you kind of said. And of course, I, I think, you know, working is going to change forever as a result. Yeah. Because a large portion of this is never going to go back to face-to-face work. Yeah. Like it was before because employers are going to realize their efficiencies, their savings, their lower risks, et cetera, et cetera. Higher productivity in a lot of ways. They're, they're, gonna, they're going to realize stubbornly like uh, looking over someone's shoulder uh, eight, eight hours a day uh, so that they aren't playing solitaire doesn't actually increase productivity, um, which leads to one of my greatest passions and causes in life. You may not agree with me, but uh, I'm pro-nap. I want more people taking more naps more often. I think naps are one of the most fantastic things in the world. I think they I think that they help our memory, our learning, our retention, our creativity, our productivity. I'm I'm uh, I'm sure I'm very biased, but you know, in in recording in recording many of these episodes uh, a day, often I always make sure that I allow time for a nap in between. Oh, I learned when, that. I learned that. Oh, I slept through. I slept through. Uh, I was supposed to have Zlatan on, and I took a nap, and I I, I didn't slept or I slept through my alarm or something. And, and so, I of course forgave you. And you forgave me because you're because I'm a guy. nap subscriber too. So. And I, you know, but, but the idea is, is that, you know, when I'm doing, when I'm doing these, this may not look like a lot of work, but what's going on up here uh, <laughs> uh, is that I'm having to focus and listen the most intensely that I have to all day long. And then I'm taking in new information. I'm having to process that this is a huge part of what, uh, of what sleep is about, Right. And so, and so having, having that nap in between, I feel helps my retention. I feel it helps me energize. I stay energized. I often feel drained after these. There's and a lot of evidence to support that it does so in terms of learning, in terms of memory, in terms of uh, being able to control. So one of my colleagues did this study, a nap study, um, where uh, they've, uh, they've kind of gave people a very, very difficult thing to do, uh, kind of annoying thing that you get frustrated really quickly. And uh, that people nap or not nap, and people who just nap found the thing way less frustrating and as a result persevered, persevered more. So I, I think there's a lot of evidence to, to, to do that. And, you know, companies, Silicon Valley, that can afford that kind of flexibility and work to their employees have been instituting some naps on allowing for some nap opportunities um, Mm -hmm. at some of these companies. I I do want to, not to pop the kind of the balloon of remote working and letting people choose their hours, which I think is is great. And the segment of occupations where I think it's always done best like that and will continue to do best like that. I think there are important parts of work where having people physically together in the same physical environment is extremely important. It's again, one of those things we, we just don't think about because it's always been like that and everywhere mm-hmm. is like that. And we always done it like that until now. Right. So, right. The, 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 so think about when, you know, uh, Starbucks, right? Why do people go to Starbucks? You can get your coffee and go home and work too. Mm-hmm. Right. But no, you want those other little workers around you, everybody buried in their laptop. You have that energy. Right. You feel like you're a part of something. You have these cues that are motivating you a little bit. Right. That are kind of helping to define the moment 
to keep your focus on right. your work and whatever you're doing on your laptop, you know, at home is like, nah, I think I want a glass of wine. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and that's going to be, you know, yeah. If you were, you know, writing poetry, whatever. <laughs> right. Right. But, um, so, so I think it, in terms of productivity, I, I think for some things it's not good. Uh, I think for group discussion is probably not as good, you know, I, my my department, you know, we're trying to figure out how to interact as a group online and to do all that, given that there are no students now physically on campus. And yeah, it's kind of cumbersome. It's awkward. You know, you don't have that social feeling of a group. It's kind of like CNN screen with six faces. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think one-on-one virtual thing is pretty good. But when you try to have any more social or group situation, it's, it's very hard in terms of conversation flow, in terms of those interpersonal dynamics. And for some types of work, uh, that matters a lot. The flow, the speed of idea exchange, the nonverbals, uh, somebody tapping you on the shoulder, right, to get your attention. Um, so I think a lot of companies, right, what they will be thinking about, right, what goes in this group and what goes in this group. It's mm-hmm. interesting. Um, so... You know, I was kind of thinking, as you were talking about all of the things that disrupt sleep, um, there's got to be a number of things that aid in sleep. I know there's, there's sleep aids and drugs that we take. I, I, I imagine those are probably not the best um, for people artificially inducing sleep. But um, just kind of thinking about positive psychology for, for example, you know, as our first inclination is like, let's get rid of the problem. Okay. Stress is the problem. Well, if we stress out about stress enough, maybe we'll get rid of stress. And then, um, but, but there's, there has to be, so something like anxiety can keep you up. What would be like a great emotion for, for triggering sleep? Like, um, like if you could prime like contentment or something like that. I think that would be a, uh, the two I would highlight are gratitude and serenity. Gratitude and serenity. So serenity, because really we're getting at those, the calmness, right? So one thing you try to cultivate with a lot of meditative practice is serenity, right? Is this sense of calm positivity, not excitement, not yay, life is amazing, right? The, uh, those are emotions in the West, positive emotions that are actually prioritized in Western cultures, right? Everything's the best, right? Superlatives all over the place. In a lot of Eastern cultures that have developed the meditative traditions, right? It's not the high arousal positive emotions that are most prized. It's those calming, low arousal, being, feeling calm, feeling serene, you use the word content, which we could also throw in a mix. So mm-hmm. again, because those emotions involve low physiological arousal, right? Lack of those kinds of fight or flight reactions that we talked about. So the more we cultivate emotions like this, like meditating before sleep, right? We are helping, again, having less arousal before bed. So writing the try to remove the things that add arousal, right? We can uh, f- uh, focus on adding things that calm it down. And so that's why I mentioned ser- serenity. And gratitude kind of goes in there. We know uh, gratitude uh, makes uh, people you know, feel good, right? And gratitude, being, th- uh, being thankful for good things in your life, and they're always, as long as you're breathing, there are probably some, right? Again, that, that changes the focus uh, from those bad things and the stresses and ex- problems you've got to solve. The great things that happen to you 
or merely good or okay things that happen to you. Um, so, uh, and that works on that more mental cognitive level, if you wish, right? Obviously those are connected. So I think cultivating those um, is what we can do. And what I would add to that is, and this is why every uh, you know, uh, sleep advice will involve something about sleep consistency. It has to do with those rhythms, right? Because if you're sleeping consistent, again, your body knows when it's uh, sleep time, up time, sleep time, up time, right? If you're not consistent, right, all these bodily systems are not quite synchronized, right? So then like, you know, and I've done a lot of that and self-imposed, you know, then I'm wondering why, why I can't fall asleep? It's already 2 a.m. Well, yesterday I was up till 4 a.m. So, you know, and the day before it was, you know, 11 or then I went to sleep at 9 p.m. because I was so exhausted. So um, it's going to be very hard to have those transition being orderly if that sleep-wake transition is a different point in a cycle every time. Mm. Right. So to make that falling asleep as well as waking up smooth and orderly and get all the systems to work together, you won't have the predictability and consistency. So thus having a bedtime routine, trying to go to bed at the same time every night. That's why those things are important. Right. Because they're cues to us when these things are happening and all those other things are going to be easier. Hmm. So if someone's like uh, going going to bed and trying to dial things down, but they still, you know, want something uh, for entertainment. I, I I mean, I I always uh, a good science book before before bed always always helps do the job for me. But if you're oh, gonna it's watch, it's horrible for me. It's horrible for me. Really? Because <laughs> I just got the research ideas then. Oh <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that happens too sometimes. I have I, to read like non nonfiction was never able to do for me. It has to be like something completely removed, right? Really? I mean, does it? You know, those are yeah. baggage of a scientist, right? But huh? Um, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I sometimes I sometimes have jokes that keep me up at night. It's like ah, I don't want to get out of bed and write that down, but I have to. Ah, I don't want to lose it. Um, but it, yeah, it's um. Uh, it's, it's so uh, what I, what I wanted to ask the big important question, someone's fallen asleep. They want to watch something. What do you think would be better to start dialing things down? Like a fast and furious type movie with a bunch of explosions. Oh, the best. Or, that's the best. <laughs> that's the best? <laughs> or, or say a science podcast. <laughs> yeah. So first I would, you know, I would say read a book, something that doesn't involve yeah. any kind of sensory input. Right. right. That's number one. Then just listening to speech, I would probably put mm. next. And mm. only then anything with the screen that has a sound, right? Yeah, Again, yeah. I, not that I follow my own advice always. I certainly don't. Um, right. But, you know, we know, I mean, this is common sense. Like if you want to de-arouse, don't then do things that are going to arouse <laughs> you, which is what sound and light or physical activity. So, mm. um, you know, a, a, a golden older recommendations is, you know, get up and fold laundry, you know, again, do, do a rote kind of mundane activity that's not going to cue any of those thoughts and stresses, right? But uh, folding laundry, washing dishes, stuff like that, that's when I come up with my best ideas and then yeah, I got to write them down. This is an individual thing, right? Yeah, so yeah. It's not a universal recommendation, but the idea is to do something that's very different from what the thoughts that you're keeping away, but also not something that's that's uh, sensory or uh, arousing yeah. in, terms of, in terms of senses. Um, 
but yeah, I think listening to a podcast, you know, uh, believe me, I can put people to sleep like nobody. Oh, yeah. You know business. what's great? You know what's great? Picking a podcast of something that you're completely not interested in, <laughs> technology you don't understand. <laughs> you are the best sleep aid. <laughs> I mean, I can. I've I've stood on stage in front of groups of people, and I'm still able to. Uh, I I mean, I've been able to put people to sleep right in their chairs. Right in a right in a show. Well, me too. Four years. Uh, Four years. They pay me for it. <laughs> um, what about um, uh, as as this is? I haven't I haven't seen the data. I'm going to wildly speculate that this is the most amount of Xanax um, <laughs> that that a lot of people have been have been taking in a while. Um, what about different medications, different sleep aids? What what do they do? How do they work? What do they do well? What do they what what do they do poorly? What what are some of the things that? Because I I mean I, I think a lot of people have the sense that you know like alcohol you get blackout drunk yes you will fall asleep but it's not the best um sleep of your uh, that you're ever going to get so how how do these um how, how do these sleep aids um change or, or differ from just regular old sleep yeah so yeah great great question so uh, you know let me preface the answer by saying because sleep has these multiple components that have to align for us to kind of fall asleep stay asleep right uh, these drugs will tend to work on one component right so, uh, you know, melatonin is something that you can buy over the counter that a lot of people use. Now, melatonin works uh, specifically um, on the falling asleep process. And there's a natural buildup of melatonin, which is triggered by darkness or lack of light, especially uh, uh, warmer light frequencies, right? So, you know, what you'll notice, right, when it's noon, the sun is almost white, blue, right? And when it's sunset, it's very red. So it's actually that the change in light and change in the spectrum of light and ultimately dark, right, is what triggers melatonin. That's why they call it the vampire hormone because it comes out mm. at night. Um, that triggers melatonin and that, that starts and aids the process of falling asleep, which then cascades to other chemical reactions in the brain, et cetera, et cetera. So melatonin triggers that falling asleep. And because melatonin is in trade to natural light, it's also something that's important to take when you typically want to fall asleep, right? Because it's, 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 you don't want to take a melatonin for a nap because it's going to confuse your brain. Melatonin needs to come out at night when you're falling asleep. So it's really something you want to take in the evening right when you're ready to go to sleep. And also don't take more than uh, one milligram because this is not regulated. They're selling massive doses, which are both unnecessary and potentially counterproductive um because uh you know you can flood the system with melatonin and then maybe you lose too much um so i think melatonin can work well for a lot of people if they can again at that natural time when you want to be going whenever your routine is to to going to sleep uh when we go to like sort of proper sleep aids um you had the old school drugs, which were mostly basically central uh, nervous systems depressants you know things like barbiturates um, uh, similar things again, the you know, anxiolytics, Xanax that you described as being giving as a sleep aid for decades, right? Mm -hmm. Because again, it tends to tamp down on that sympathetic nervous system, right? Mm. That's uh, that's keeping us awake. 
So again, that, that works pretty well. Of course, it, it's habit forming and potentially very addictive and it has other, uh, other, other issues. The, the, the new generation of, of, of hypnotics, as they're called, or, or sleep drugs, uh, things like Ambien, uh, are a bit more sophisticated. They don't work so globally, right? They still work on this neurotransmitter called GABA, which is what's secreted when you kind of first fall asleep and that reduces activity in a lot of brain areas. So what Ambien does, it really increases production um, of this neurotransmitter and it thus helps us quote unquote sleep. But again, I, I wouldn't identify completely ambient induced sleep with natural sleep mm -hmm. because you're changing one, just one part of chemistry and, and you're helping. So it, 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 it does aid sleep, but because sleep is such a complex animal, we can't say for sure that your sleep looks the same, right? Um, when it doesn't. And the other thing Ambien does, because it uh, does that one component, people can have these parasomnias or weird conscious experiences, right? Because part of your brain is suppressed by Ambien, but another part is not. Um, you know, sleepwalking and very, very bizarre things. Um, and last things about Ambien, Ambien has a very short half-life. It's processed very quickly. It's metabolized very quickly. So Ambien is not really good to keeping you asleep. It's really good that helping you go to sleep and then sleeping for a couple of hours. But then it's basically, it, it stops working, right? So, you know, some people will also keep it, uh, take it if they wake up in the morning. You know, some, one uh, form of insomnia is like, you have no problem falling asleep, but then you're up after five hours at 4 a.m. And you don't want to be up, you're not well rested, but because of whatever, anxiety or, or maybe circadian rhythms even. So the ambient can be helpful there, right? Because then you can take it, let's say at 4 a.m., but it's out of your system by 7 a.m., let's say, where you need to get up and do stuff. So um, I guess the word of these things can, can work pretty well. And if really other things are not working, good sleep hygiene practices, some of the things we're talking about, I think they're a good option. But I think people want to, again, think about these factors that I mentioned about when it needs to be taken. And again, these things are habit-forming. So... Hmm. So I think those are probably our most important candidates to discuss in terms of uh, uh, in terms of pharmaceuticals, right? Yeah, I mean, I I've been. This is one of my blessings in life is that I I'm I'm pretty good at sleeping. So out of all the drugs that I've done in my life, I've I've never had to do any uh, any sleep aids, which I'm thankful. Uh, for. I have, you know, like I mean, marijuana is uh, one thing that helps some people. Again, it depends on strains and the, the psychoactive composition of individual strains, but it certainly mm -hmm. has some properties that have been found effective for a lot of people's um, insomnia. Unless for some people like myself, it makes them paranoid and think of every to-do list and thing that they aren't doing, and then makes them go, uh, "What? Why?" Why, why aren't I doing work right now? There's this to-do list. Oh, no, I'm high. I can't do any of these things that I need to be doing. Weed used to be my favorite drug in the entire planet when I, back when I was a teenager, and it just, it just stopped working for me in that, in that same way. So I can't depend on that. But, yeah, some, some, people, some people swear by it. It just goes to say there's just a million individual differences. What are, as, as we wrap up, what are just to in, um, just just to recap um, and and anything that 
you may not have said, oh, shoot. You know what? Did, can I have you for just a few more minutes? I had one other I'm, question. I'm, uh, I'm available. Oh, okay, okay. I uh, have to rush off to work. Yeah, well, I very much appreciate it. This is just um, uh, fascinating, and I, I know how much my listeners loved it. The first time you were on, and we talked about dreams a bit. I don't, I don't quite recall the conversation, but... Um, but the or or every aspect of it rather um you were very memorable so you don't worry about uh but uh, but i um in terms of dreams i i'm curious the difference between sleeping and dream you know uh, what what inhibits or uh influences dreams makes for more dreams even though you know whether you're sleeping or not uh, like again the example of being blackout drunk, it's my understanding that that you're not going to get into the phase where where you're going to dream as much, and that's going to inhibit dreams. So I'm I'm curious what what influences. Um, do you know what I'm trying to say? Dreams more than more than sleep. Yeah. So I I think when we think about our dream experiences, they really define what we remember, right? When we wake up, mm-hmm. and that's a just a tiny tiny sliver of actual dream experiences that are going on. Mm-hmm. That may never come to full consciousness. The reason we know that is that if you put people in a sleep laboratory and you put an EEG cap on them to measure the brain waves, and you wait till they get to that rapid eye movement sleep, when you have really active brain waves, just like when we are awake, and you wake people up, they pretty much always report a dream. So we have, you know, dozens, if not hundreds, obviously hard to count these things up, dreams. You know, most of them never kind of get to our, our, our daytime consciousness. Right, so we are really not aware of most of our dream life. The right. ones that break it through tend to be emotionally arousing and self-relevant ones, right? Um, often because of uh, physiological arousal, like nightmares, that arousal is so high that then it wakes us up from sleep, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the mental content in your brain that triggered the physical reaction in your sleep that then woke you up. I mean, that's a that's a fascinating things about things yeah. like nightmares, right? Um, you really woke yourself up with your ideas in the middle of sleeping. Mm-hmm. I mean, right? That's what happens when you wake up from a nightmare or even maybe positive dream that's, that's, that's very intense. You know, I, you know there's going to be a lot of more dreams about viruses, about epidemics, about people in white suits and coats. And, you know, we know that the dreams get infused with uh, the texture of our uh, everyday life, the objects, mm-hmm. the, the colors, right? The, the elements. Um, you know, a lot of people are very anxious and concerned. I think their dreams are going to start to be preoccupied by, you know, where, where the employment is going to go or how they're going to take care of their children. So, you know, that, that will become, I think, uh, a, a common characteristics to a lot of people's, um, a lot of people's dreams. Mm. Um, and we also know that dreams have this kind of therapeutic function. One thing that happens is that it's this hyper-associative state, which is why we get a lot of these goofy ideas and goofy images, right? But that helps the brain kind of uh, uh, problem solve and consider novel solutions, kind of think outside of the, the box, if you wish. Um, so, so now there's a lot of thinking outside of the box that's very much needed. And I think you could make an argument that the dreaming, what we're dreaming about now, even though most of us will never remember most of it, you know, it, it is going to play you know, a key role in, in, in how we bounce back from this crisis. Mm. Amazing. All right. Well, just to just to recap, um, uh, you know, individual differences, um, uh, 
maybe not aside, but allowing for individual differences, what is, uh, what, what is some of the simplest um, kind of universal things that are going to help the most number of people um, sleep? I would say this, if, if you have that possibility and you're at home and don't have to report to work and you're with your children, you know, use this time to follow your biological clock, to have a routine that honors what your body needs. And some people won't be able to do that. Poor health workers on the front lines won't be able to do that. But for those who are able to do that, uh, they should do that. They should take advantage of not having that uh, alarm clock. Um, I think that's key. You know, coping with, you know, drugs and alcohol and food is what goes up always during these times. So another thing I would just, you know, ask people to think about, and it's so easy, and now you're home, now you kind of have whatever you have at home is constantly available, right? So there's going to be a new level of self-control, too, that we're going to have to develop uh, mm. and that we should think about to persevere uh, uh, through this time. And, you know, so I think these things we can sort of harness at this time. Uh, final point I wanted to, uh, uh, the other thing to, to emphasize again is light that I uh, mentioned earlier and get exposed to light. That's going to help your sleep. It's going to help your day. It's going to help your emotions. Uh, and I think that's pretty much universal. <laughs> so yeah. I don't think many individual differences there. Yeah. Uh, and the final point I wanted to uh, touch on has to do with uh, uh, touch, <laughs> actually, and, and loneliness. So one, one thing that's really sad if you die with COVID-19 is that you died alone with no family members, no loved ones, nobody to see you, nobody to touch you, nobody to hold your hand. And that must be horrible, right? That, that, that this is the, really the only situation where you meet that kind of death, even in a, in a, in a hospital, right? And we understand why that is because of the, the, the precautions. Um, with lack of working, with lack of parties, with lack of going out, millions of people are deprived of physical touch, not just social interaction, but physical touch that we are used to. I am really fortunate because I have people that live with me and sleep with me. So I did not quite lose that component. And I still feel a loss, right? I still want to hug a friend or, you know, some, something like that. And it's one thing that we evolved to have and to need. And when somebody touches you, there are automatic physiological reactions. So it's not just something. It's just think when somebody says, hey, it's going to be okay. Well, somebody say, hey, it's going to be okay. And saying that by touching you is not the same thing, right? We, we get comfort and safety and security from physical content. So, mm -hmm. so I think that what we want to think to navigate, and it's a kind of a challenge, is the good thing is that we are reconnecting with our loved ones. I mean, I haven't spent more time chatting online with my friends and family in Croatia I don't know, for, for a long time. Mm -hmm. But I think about that person who's alone in that New York apartment that doesn't have a roommate, doesn't have a boyfriend, that can't go out. That person maybe didn't touch anybody for weeks. Mm -hmm. That's not good for us. We don't do well like that. So, you know, there's maybe not much to do except get that teddy bear. And I will give that advice right now mm -hmm. is take a stuffed animal and sleep with it and have it, you know, maybe you have a cat, maybe you have a dog. I think the physical aspect of companionship, I think it's something we're going to, again, realize how important it is during this crisis. Hmm. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, so 
Uh, one one last small question, and then I want I want to plug some of your uh, stuff. Um, but that was, I almost ended it right there, but I just can't help myself. Um, so as as there's these you know intuitive things, eating before bed, you know maybe staying away from candy, not drinking coffee before. I I I can. It doesn't matter what I do. I can drink a cup of coffee and go right to sleep. Uh, I I I have it's my superpower, but. Um, but for most people, you know, avoiding that. But but same with this kind of positive psychology, uh, you, you know, maybe um, uh, priming serenity and gratitude before bed. Are there any foods out there that are naturally sleep-inducing, like, say, turkey? You, know, you eat a bunch of poppy seeds, <laughs> they'll be sleep-inducing. <laughs> so, yes, but, you know, barring things that really kind of contain this kind of drugs, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about that. I mean, I'm not an expert in this particular area. Yeah. You know, you know the, the, there are things, you know, there's soothing things. You know, people sell, you know, aromatherapy, have a glass of chamomile tea. There is really not a lot of scientific evidence these things do anything. But I will say these things can be a key part of your bedtime ritual. And then they can be really important. Right, right. And beneficial. Coffee may not hurt you falling asleep, but keep in mind that coffee will, will reduce the percentage of slow-wave sleep and deep sleep. Mm. Again, may have a, a Michael Pollan writes about that in his new uh, audiobook on uh, caffeine. Ah, so, interesting. It's um, I would recommend. So, um, so yes, yeah, so there's, um, okay. there, there's that as well. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I, I just want to um, plug your uh your evening uh gig you're also you do some psytrance uh djing a, a bit from time to time correct yes still do uh and other kinds of uh, djing uh perform locally here as well so i have my I had several shows canceled as well but yeah. me and my brother are working on a new project long distance so now it's a good time that we catch up with that where, where can people find it um, so we are just about to release it. It's uh, on Bandcamp. It's called On Off, On Dash Off on Bandcamp.com. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you, Slatin, for joining me. And You're welcome. And just uh, one final note: if yeah. uh, if your uh, viewers, listeners uh, are interested a little bit more about sleep, I have a piece coming up in uh, the conversation. That's theconversation.com. That speaks a little bit about. Uh, Fantastic. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for joining me. Thanks much for the opportunity and stay healthy and great to see you, Shane. Great to see you. And thank you listeners for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you next episode. A podcast network.